There is a haunting lyric that we sing fairly frequently here at Omaha Bible Church, and Christians have been singing it for a couple of hundred years now at least, and that lyric is, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I hate that lyric, although I will gladly continue to sing it, and I'm actually glad that we sing it, but I hate it because it's so troubling, it's disturbing. There is something in us as professing believers, not glorified, that is prone to wonder, to drift spiritually. And if there's only one mediator between God and man, uh, there are countless ways for us, us to drift, and it is indeed troubling. Well, I want to help you this morning uh, with that kind of drift, if you will, from Hebrews chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can find Hebrews 2, which we read for Scripture reading. And what happens in Hebrews 2 is a firm but loving pastoral challenge, warning slash exhortation. So you don't get the sense it's mean-spirited at all, but it is steady, it is firm, and the author is urging professing Christians like us to continue to look to Christ because it is in Christ and in Christ alone that you will find true, ultimate, lasting help. And so I love Hebrews 2. I don't just say this. It is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Uh, I thought it would be a good text to end the year on and start the new year on, so to speak. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll start and uh, we'll, well, we will resume our study of the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 19. But I thought it would be good for us as we end a year and start a new year that we rem- are reminded about the significance of Christ. So I hope you're ready to do that with me this morning. Uh, Let's go ahead and look at the opening verse, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's worth looking at a second time. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What we have heard in the context of Hebrews is the gospel, the good news about the sufficient life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus for you to be right with God. So that's what we've heard in Hebrews. Clearly that's what he has in mind. And he's saying we need to pay much closer attention to it He uses nautical terms or or shipping terms, sailing terms, uh, to, to help with the picture. So the idea is to pay much closer attention. If you are sailing a ship and if you want to sail the ship safely into harbor or to the port, whichever one it is, you will focus your attention there so you don't enter into dangerous territory. To borrow from the Apostle Paul, so you don't make shipwreck of the faith. So you've got to focus on Christ and keep focusing on Christ, lest things go badly for you, is the idea. 
And he says, therefore, because he, he thinks back to chapter 1, which is so wonderful in the opening two verses, in light of what verses 1 and 2 say, familiar words, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So you all get the idea that God has, has given us ultimate revelation. In these last days, He's not spoken to us through the types and shadows. In these last days, those are meant to serve a purpose. In these last final days, history was going somewhere all along. He's spoken to us through ultimate rev- revelation, His Son. And so we're to make sure, we're to be careful to have our gaze fixed for spiritual safety on the sun, lest things go badly, is the idea. And I think this is important for us because I do think we're prone to wonder. I think it was an important issue in the first century. It's always been an important issue. I just sadly heard in the last couple of weeks that someone didn't want to be at Omaha Bible Church anymore because we are too Christ-centered in our approach to interpreting the Bible. And that is very sad. I do think we have gospel ADD as sinners and we forget Christ and we no longer need Christ and it is spiritually dangerous for us to lose sight. Okay, so salvation is the work of Christ. It's not what we do and yet we are called as Christians to have our focus and to keep our focus, yes, by God's grace, yes, by God's help, but it is something we're responsible to do. It is, it is involving effort. And so we want to be encouraged that way. I hope we are today. Now what happens after that exhortation or that challenge or, or that exhortation or challenge is what we can call it. After that, he gives the rationale, the, the, the reasoning. And it is deep and wide. So I hope you have a comfortable chair um, because it's going to involve some some digging and looking. Um, you can pray for your pastor to, to talk faster than he normally does because they're already lining up outside for the next service. Not literally, but kind of. Um, there is one coming. I can take as much time as I want on the fourth service, um, but my family comes to that one, so I can't. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Without apology... This isn't going to be the easiest thing we've ever done. He's assuming an Old Testament literate audience. And some of us are more literate than others when it comes to the Old Testament. But he's writing to first century people who come from a Hebrew background. But I think I can help you. We all have to start somewhere. And so I can help you appreciate what's going on here. But it won't be effortless. And what he's going to do is help us with a practical thing. How to survive spiritually, which couldn't be more practical, with theology. He's going to take us deep and wide theologically to understand the reason you would keep your gaze focused on Christ is because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done and how extraordinary that is. So I think we're going to have a good time. I trust we're going to have a good time. I'm going to do my best to have us have a good time. Let's go ahead and look at the rationale for focusing on Christ. He says in verse 2, For since the message declared by angels, 
meaning the law of God given the context to follow. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution or payment, how shall we escape, in the context, how shall we escape divine retribution if we neglect such a great salvation? And what is the answer? He assumes we're all smart enough to know. We're not going to escape it, is the implied answer. Okay? So the the rationale is this. It's pretty straightforward. God has laws, and God is just. And so if you're a lawbreaker, there's going to be a payment. There's going to be a consequence. It's translated retribution. And God has had a long history of being God. And he's had a long history of being just. And he's had a long history of offering retribution to those who do not perfectly, perpetually, and personally obey his law. He's assuming we know that. And it's something that's clear in the Old Testament. It's clear throughout human history where you violate God's law. There's suffering and death and consequence. That's how it goes. So the argument is this. It's super simple, but really important and really profound If God is God and God has laws and if you violate the laws, you get a just or fair payment, you need Jesus, okay? You definitely need Jesus. You need Him because He and He alone perfectly upheld God's standards. He and He alone perfectly makes atonement for sin as we will see in Hebrews. He and He alone is raised from the the dead proving that it was sufficient and acceptable to God. So he's, He's starting in an easy place but an important place. Fix your gaze on him for spiritual safety because you know who we're dealing with. We're dealing with God who offers just retribution and you need shelter from that storm. So it's a good place for us all to start. God does not wink at sin. God does not say say, let bygones be bygones. No, it's just retribution, no escaping it. Hebrews 10.31 will say, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, that's reason enough we should close in prayer um, and have an altar call or something. (laughs) He's just going to keep digging. He's just going to keep helping us to go deeper and deeper and wider and wider so that we'll see our gaze should be fixed upon Christ. Verse 3 goes on to say, it was declared at first by the Lord. It, the gospel, the revelation of the Son, the substitutionary work of Jesus, uh, it it is referring to that according to this flow in the context. It was declared first by the Lord, the Son himself, who came and did things and spoke and explained himself. That was, it first came from him. I didn't, Come to be served, but to, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, give my life as a ransom for many. He's the one who talked about that first. Then if we keep progressing, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So there were eyewitnesses, apostles, disciples, men, women, boys and girls who, who witnessed these historic events that actually happened. Then he goes another step. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles... So those things also help us to say, wow, God did something extraordinary like like when he did extraordinary things in the Old Testament. God is always extraordinary, but God doesn't always act in the world extraordinarily. 
Okay? Miracles aren't the norm, actually, throughout human history. They're actually the exception. Something unique, something new, something special, a transition. So signs and wonders, for example, with Moses and, and, and Egypt and delivering the people. And so he's using the same kind of verbiage, same kind of terminology. You know, when Jesus was here on earth, there were signs and wonders, extraordinary, something out of the, out of the ordinary is happening. Just like when God has done those things in the past. Okay, that's where he's going. And then he finally says, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And that seems to be referring, if I can borrow from other New Testament texts, uh, to church life and the establishment of the church and the gifting of the church by Christ, Allah, Ephesians chapter 4. Or in other words, texts like that. What's the takeaway? What's he getting at in verses 3 and 4? Keep your focus on Christ, because if you focus on Christ for your eternal safety, you're not stupid. You're not somebody who puts their faith in faith. You're not someone who, uh, you know, closes their eyes and does, does the blind faith thing. He's actually arguing, if you're trusting in, cre- in Jesus, your eyes are open faith thing. You're actually paying attention to a historic one, and then other historic ones who affirm, and unique supernatural things that affirm, and also something unique, the church that affirms. Okay? So you might be crazy in other parts of your life, but being a Christian doesn't call for being crazy. If these things actually happened, dare I say, to not believe in them and to have your gaze fixed on Jesus is crazy. To look elsewhere to get forgiveness is crazy. That's how he's arguing. He's using reason, rationale, in light of revelation to say, keep looking to, to Christ. Now what he's going to do is transition a little bit and emphasize the humility and the suffering and the humanity of Jesus. Which probably needs to be done because... For some of us, when we become Christians, our life doesn't get better. Our life gets worse. Our greatest problem has been solved, but in the temporary here and now, it doesn't lead to better things. It leads to worse things. And that certainly would have been the case for certain people living in first century Jerusalem. Okay? Whether it be family, work, society, certainly religion. uh, And those things were all wrapped up together. And so... He's going to address some of those kinds of issues. Ready? Hope you're ready. It's not going to get better because it can't get any better, but there's more. Okay? There's more. He says in verse 5, Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And I, I wrote in my margin, or I wrote above angels, I wrote flashy to remind me, powerful, strong, mighty. So don't think of the angel, the lapel pin angel you're going to buy, uh, the little chubby, weakling uh, angel thing you're going to buy at the religious bookstore that you're not going to go to today, not just because they're closed, but you shouldn't go there anyway. Anyway, I digress. (laughs) In the Bible, angels are strong. Angels are powerful. Angels are mighty and bright and shining, thus flashy. 
And so he's going to argue here, actually, that God chose to work through human beings, weak ones, if you will. He's going to go to Psalm 20, or excuse me, he's going to go to Psalm 8. So maybe we want to be strong and mighty and flashy. And and if I'm really a Christian and God is really for me, shouldn't I be like them? No. Let's keep reading. You can go to the religious bookstore if you want to, by the way. I love going to religious bookstores. I have all kinds of stories that I'm tempted to tell you right now, but the Holy Spirit is working in me and I'm not going to do it. You know, before health food was such a big thing and and people were vegan and vegetarian and all that kind of stuff, I used to love to go with my brother. Uh, He lives in Massachusetts and we would go to the Seventh-day Adventist grocery store bookstore because you're not supposed to eat, you know, meat. And so they would have these fake vegetable hot dogs. (laughs) Okay, I I didn't mean to go there. Nobody else got that. And just interesting things. Ellen White. Ellen White says you shouldn't drink caffeine because it promotes gossip. I digress again, so. uh. (laughs) Human religion is amazing. I want to say more about Ellen White and food, but I won't because I don't want to lose my job. Okay, Uh, she said a lot of things. Where were we? We can edit all this, maybe. Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Verse 6 says, It has been... Pray for me. It has been testified somewhere, which is an odd way of referring to Scripture, but it's what the the author does. It's Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere. Now he's going to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now your first knee-jerk is to read Jesus into that, and I appreciate your style, but I would encourage you not to yet. Okay, We're going to get to Jesus, I promise. Uh, I like the ESV translating it, son of man, lowercase, because he's talking here about human beings, not Messiah. Here's what's going to happen. Psalm 8 surprisingly teaches that God has chosen to work through human beings. Isn't it amazing that human beings are made in God's image? Isn't it amazing that God chose human beings to have dominion over the earth? He didn't use angels. This is fascinating to the psalmist in Psalm 8. And so keep that in mind for now. And eventually, we're going to see Jesus. Okay? But not yet. Continuing to quote Psalm 8. You made him... This is verse 7 of our text. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Still still quoting Psalm 8. Human beings lower than the angels for a little while. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's still mankind talk in Psalm 8. We might not be used to that, but wow, the God used, did this through human beings. That's extraordinary. Uh, Humble human beings to put everything in subjection under his feet. You know, if Adam, the first Adam, would have done the right thing when, when the serpent came and told lies, if he would have done, done the right thing, what, would he have, what should he have done? I wish I would have worn my old motorcycle boots today. He should have stomped on his head, right? He should have had dominion over protecting that holy place as even a priest would protect a holy place. He should have stomped on him. Instead, he subjects himself to the serpent. 
And things went horrible after this. And they're still going horribly because of this. So what's, what's about to happen is now he's going to connect the dots and he's going to connect the dots. Jesus is, to quote 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. There are two. Jesus is the one who succeeded. Jesus on behalf of his people. Jesus is the one who's successful on behalf of his people. He's even going to talk about conquering Satan and the devil on behalf of his people. Why would you take your gaze away from Jesus, who's the successful dominion haver, if you will, the true and better Adam, as we even sang this morning, it would be crazy to. It would be crazy to. So if you wanted to get to Jesus, here we go. Verse 8 goes on to say, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. I'm in great company thinking, oh, he, he is now getting to Jesus. Everything and nothing. So that includes everything and leaves out nothing. Should have been that way with the first Adam, but it wasn't. We all know that and we're living in light of that. But now if Jesus is the true and better Adam, the last Adam, now and he's successful, then he's, le- he's done everything and left nothing. Then verse 8 ends with so wonderfully, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So I want to see it that way now. It's true, it's done if he succeeded in doing what the first Adam didn't do, but we don't see it that way yet. And we could look elsewhere to talk about his return. We won't do it in our text this morning. Let's keep going. Verse 9 says, But we, we believers, we Christians, see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Ah, incarnation. So human beings, Psalm 8, made a little while lower than the angels, and it makes you go, hmm, why is it only for a little while? Oh, we know how, we know why. Because it's, even that text is anticipating one who would come later, who would be successful. So even he, we as Christians see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, incarnation, Christmas stuff, Namely, ah, he did connect the dots to Jesus. Namely, Jesus. See, we see him as the one who's successful where the first Adam wasn't. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. We see him that way because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Or you could even translate it for everything. In a, in a Romans 8-esque kind of way or a Colossians 1-esque kind of way because not only does it affect human redemption, it actually affects the whole world because restoration will come and there won't be suffering and there won't be death. Eventually, He does what He does to reconcile everything. So there's a lot going on here, I know. Good job for hanging in there so far. Keep looking to Christ for your security and significance. Don't take your gaze away from Him because there's only been one who has been the successful have dominion over one, if I could put it in those terms. And we see Him for who He really is. We see Him for who He really is. Now, we would have to look elsewhere for now, even though resurrection is talked about in Hebrews. But, but we're not going to actually turn to look at other texts. Now, we actually know that by raising him from the dead, he's been vindicated, shown to be successful. He's the one who did it. 
That's what he, so he's crowned with glory. He was successful in doing what he did. Okay, we should keep moving to the next section where it says in verse 10, for it was fitting that he, I'm going to take that as God the Father in context, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, I'm going to take that, perfect through suffering. King James translates founder, captain. I like that. It's the idea of a pioneer though, the founder, the one who blazes the trail, the one who does the work. Jesus is the one who is the founder. Jesus is the one who goes and is successful, but he's successful not for his own sake. He's successful on behalf of the many sons, the many siblings, the many who would be children of God, bringing many sons to glory. The first Adam, if you will, brought many sons to corruption, to quote Romans 5, to condemnation. And here this one, the one we're supposed to keep our focus riveted upon, God uses him, God the Father uses him to bring many sons to glory. Sons as in, as in inheritors. He's not being sexist. He, he's, he's having us all be equal as those who would inherit in the ancient world at least. Do notice how it happens at the end of verse 10. He does it but he makes the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Was Jesus perfect before he was incarnate? It's not really a trick question. The answer is, of course he was. He's the eternal son. Was Jesus perfect when he was born in Bethlehem? It's not really a trick question. Of course he was. Now, I'm kind of trying to trick you now. Because our text says he was made perfect through suffering. So here's where we're careful when we interpret the Bible in light of the Bible. We say, well, what does he mean by perfect? Well, there's a very real sense in which he was perfect from the very beginning before he ever did anything. Even John the Baptist, when he was older, said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the spotless one. So there's a sense in which Jesus has always been perfect and he was perfect from the very beginning But there's another sense, if we're careful about things, that he was made perfect through suffering. Okay? And it's in this sense. His whole life was a life of suffering. Okay? He was acquainted with sorrows. Right? He suffered from the very beginning to the very end. Philippians chapter 2 says, even death on a cross, there's suffering and obedience. But it doesn't say only death on a cross, but even death on a cross, there's obedience to suffering. Here's the, here's the deal. Throughout Jesus' whole life, he was tempted. Throughout Jesus' whole life, he suffered. And he did what he did on behalf of his people who are in this suffering, broken world. He did it all on our behalf, okay? He didn't have it easy doing the things that he did. When he came to fulfill all righteousness, it wasn't easy for him to do. In fact, it was far harder than the first Adam. World wasn't broken, now the world is broken. Maybe a couple of texts to think about. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, he uh, would compliment this as well. 
Luke chapter 2, verse 40, he increased in wisdom. Was Jesus wise before he was born? Absolutely. So how do you put your finger on all this kind of stuff? Think of it in these terms. He became a real human being. He became truly, genuinely one of us. And he, as a human being, learned wisdom. He matured. As a human being, not saying he was sinful to begin with, but he did the right thing in the face of temptation. And he did the right thing in the face of temptation. And he did the right thing in the face of faith face of temptation and he suffered all along is what I'm saying and I'm in good company with other sound minded theologians I tell you that because I don't want you to take my word for it as one person has put it Christ being perfected is a vocational process. It was his job as representative, as last Adam. One good commentator said, this involves his whole incarnate experience. He did all this on our behalf. Another one put it this way, he lived a life of suffering not as a private individual, just like Adam wasn't a private individual, it didn't just affect him, right? But as a public representative, winning our redemption as much by his incarnation and daily obedience as by his death and resurrection. So his whole life lived, he lived on behalf of those who would believe in him. And if that's true, and he did this on behalf of his people, why would we look elsewhere? Why would we look elsewhere? Maybe it helps us a little bit too to think of it in these terms. Um, For the last, in the 21st century more so in the 20th century, for a long time, those of us who've been Christians very long have been busy, and those who even came before us, fighting for the deity of Christ against the cults, you know, who don't believe in the deity of Christ. And that's good and right because he's divine. He's the eternal son. It's important. It's vital. But you have to know that sometimes we've fallen asleep at the wheel and we've forgotten he's not only divine, he's also a real, genuine, authentic human being as the last Adam who's going to do all of these things for us as our representative. And so we need to recover that also. Interestingly enough, like in uh, John's letters, not the gospel according to John, but in John's letters, the, the primary emphasis is not defending the deity of Christ against the cults. The primary emphasis is actually defending the humanity of Christ against the cults. Uh, think first century. Again, both are important, but think first century. Uh, polytheism was a thing, okay? So to add Jesus as just another God, not that big of a problem. Yes, it would be a problem for, for the Jews, but, but the culture at large, not such a problem. It's to say he is truly, authentically, genuinely, not a spirit being, a human being, one of us. This unique to Christianity, unique compared to every religion, truly, genuinely the eternal Son, truly, genuinely one of us. Acquainted with our sorrows, our grief, the whole time doing the right thing, conquering, subduing, having dominion over successfully, unlike the one we learn about in Romans 5, who was unsuccessful. Again, deep deep and wide here. But 
Why should we keep focusing on Jesus? Well, it's because he's, he, he's this unique one. Now, let's keep moving and maybe speed up just a little bit. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies, I think that's Jesus in this context, he who sets us apart, and those who are sanctified, that would be those who believe in him, who are set apart, unique unto God, all have one source. Or, as the footnote in many of your translations will, will say, all are of one. In other words, united. So I'm going to take it that way. For he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified believers are, are all, all are of one. The idea is united, united together. Then let's keep reading in verse 11. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And I promise you, this is going to be great when we think about it. It's great before we think about it. But if we're united to him, the sanctifier, and we are the sanctified, and we're united to him, so we receive Christ and all of his benefits, we like to say oftentimes, if that's true, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He is the elder brother, I like to say sometimes around here. And you might think to yourself, why does he keep saying that? Well, it's because of this text. He is our perfect elder brother spiritually. He sanctifies us. We're the sanctified, so we're united to him. So he claims us as his own. So the father is always pleased with this perfect son, but he's also always pleased with us because he's the one who sanctifies us in order to make us siblings. So it's great to have a perfect older brother. My parents always thought my brother was perfect, and I didn't like that much because I knew better. But I digress. In this case, he actually truly is. He's the perfect older brother, spiritual sibling, and when you trust in him, he's your sanctifier, and so you're united to him, and Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm so ashamed of my, of my siblings. No. And as a matter of fact, we don't become his siblings, contrary to human religion, by trying harder, doing better. He's the one who sanctifies. So because of his goodness, he makes us positionally good, and we're in the family then, and he's not ashamed of us. This is good, people. This is really good. This is extraordinarily good. Jesus claims us. He claims us. And think of it in terms of first century shame culture for a moment. First century Jerusalem written to Jews first and foremost. You've come to believe in Jesus as your Savior who uncle so-and-so helped crucify. Maybe it's closer than uncle so-and-so. And now your family doesn't like you much. And now you're on the outs religiously. You're on the outs with your job and, and things are tough. And it could very well be that people would say about you, we're so ashamed. We're so ashamed. You know whose opinion matters more than that? The true and better Adam. The sanctified one who sanctifies and he's not ashamed. And he's not ashamed to call you spiritual siblings. It's really good. This was good in the first century. This is good in the 21st century. So we all want people to like us and affirm us, especially those who are close to us. But you have to know that someone's opinion matters more. And it's Jesus. And so it's worth keeping your focus on him because he, and he, he is the unique one who's not ashamed of you. He claims you. It's so good. It really is.
not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, in our closing time, he's going to take Old Testament texts and connect the dots Christologically to himself, Old Testament texts. Psalm 22 is the first one. You know Psalm 22, even if you don't know Psalm 22. Psalm 22 uh, is where Jesus quotes from the cross. uh, And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not going to quote that portion here, but I just wanted you to know that you're familiar with the text. Get a load of this. this. This is worth the price of admission. Verse 12 says, saying, I, remember the one who's not ashamed to call us brothers, I will tell of your name, God's name, the Father's name, God's character, who God is, to my brothers, spiritual siblings, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I cannot hardly believe how good that is. Okay, And if this is new for you and you haven't thought about it, prepare to have your boat rocked a little bit. Okay, So he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And not only that, he says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing of your, my father's praise. So our elder spiritual perfect brother leads us in praising God. The Father, if you will, that's pretty extraordinary. And not only that, it's also super interesting because he says, in the midst of the congregation, and he uses the Greek word ekklesia, and you don't need to know that to be a Christian, thank God, okay, literally. But in case you've been a Christian very long, you'll find it interesting. Ekklesia, the Greek word for congregation or church. In the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church, I will sing of your praise. Well, he, he's, 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 he's connecting old world and new world, if you will, maybe not as a balancing act, but firmly so, because he's quoting Psalm 22. Last time I checked, it's in the Old Testament, uh, originally written in Hebrew. Again, you don't need to know, know this to be a Christian, thank the Lord. Um, originally written in Hebrew, but he's quoting the Greek version, which is called the Septuagint. In the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the congregation of the ecclesia, Oh, he's carrying that over into the new covenant world. I will sing of your praise. It, it, it's so good. Because, because, not just because of Greek words, it's, it's so good because first century in Jerusalem, temple still there, priests, sacrifices, incense, singing, instruments, extraordinary pop and circumstance, smells and bells, the whole deal. And if you're a Christian, you have none of it. What do you have? Well, maybe you got invited by, you know, Joe Smith and his weird family who became Christians. I don't know. and, And they have a flat and don't think pillow windows to keep the sights and sounds and smells out, right? Open air. If you're living close to the temple, let's just do that for effect. What do you have? Maybe part of a Bible. You don't have the whole thing. Part of a Bible. Uh, some other believers. Maybe a few. Maybe more. I'm just speculating. We don't know. But you definitely don't have what they have at the temple. And it definitely, by comparison, feels like you have nothing. 
Jane Judas, a dear saint of the Lord who went to heaven not very long ago, once told me, she said, when I, when I, when I left my religious tradition and um, believed the gospel, my family visited church with me and they said, you left our church for that? Pomp, circumstance, smells, bells. Now you have nothing. It's not exactly the same, but you can see some similarities. But you know what you do have? You have Jesus. You have Jesus, the one who is sanctified and sanctifies and claims his as his own as the perfect elder sibling. And in the midst of Mr. and Mrs. Jones' flat, or whatever it is compared to that awesome temple, He, the divine Son, the true and better Adam, with you, sings the praise of His Father. It, it is extraordinary what the author of Hebrews is doing here. You might not have anything, but if you have Jesus, you have reconciliation with God. And not only that, He is with you in worship. This text caused me to have a low view of church, to have a high view of church. And I don't mean the pomp and circumstance. I mean, church isn't just a big Bible study. That when we gather for worship as the people of God, uniquely, extraordinarily, in the midst of the church, in the midst of the congregation, He sings His Father's praises. The idea is, with us. Now we know He bodily ascended. So it's not Him bodily, but we know He sent His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to be with His people. So I, that, this, is, this, is, this text is why I believe, other texts as well, when we gather for corporate worship, it's unique, extraordinary, and the Spirit of Christ uniquely attends our worship along with us. It is why Sinclair Ferguson says, when you sing in a church and you hold hymnals, if you need a little motivation, you should think of it in terms of holding the hymnal with Jesus. Because in fact, He, the Spirit of Christ, is indeed uniquely, extraordinarily, supernaturally, even with no smells and bells, is with you. I love it. I love it. Another quotation from the Old Testament. I promise we will hurry. Now it's going to be Psalm 8. And again, this time Psalm 8, I will put my trust in Him. And again, Psalm 8, Behold, I am the children God has given me. So, ever so quickly, Isaiah is going to be ridiculed for saying the things he says. And, and things are going to, he's going to be ridiculed, put down. And so what does he have to do? I'm going to put my trust in you, Lord. For vindication, to be proven eventually right, they think I'm crazy, but, but I'm going to put my trust in you, Lord. There's immediate setting, Isaiah chapter 8. But now we have it in the mouth of Jesus. I will put my trust in you. It doesn't look good. They're opposing me. But for vindication, to ultimately be proven right, I'll put my trust in you. And the Son trusts in the Father. And in our text, He also connects it to us. So what are we going to do? Because we're united to Him. We're going to put our trust in Him. And we know the Apostle Paul teaches us he is vindicated at his resurrection. So we're trusting in the one who is resurrected. And so we have solidarity. We have union with him, uniqueness, connection to him. Okay. 
Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partick, partook of the same things. Again, incarnation. This is why it was on my mind this season. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, true and better Adam, dominion over Satan on behalf of his people. This is why the Apostle Paul uh, elsewhere would talk about that day is coming when we will stomp him under our feet. Yeah, and it's as good as done because in Christ it's been accomplished. And then, verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps. Great understatement. ESV translates it helps. It's, it's, a, it's a dynamic, graphic, almost violent word. Seizes. But don't think seizes as in takes advantage of. Think of someone who is drowning or needs to be rescued and they're, they're saved, they're seized. So this is not weak, anemic, flowing hair, Jesus. For surely it is not angels that he helps, he seizes, but he helps, he seizes, he takes hold of victoriously and powerfully the offspring of Abraham. Those who are men and women of faith, of trust, if you trust in Him, you have got to know that you're delivered, you're saved. Powerfully so. Okay, let's get this plane landed. Therefore, verse 17, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement. And you have to have atonement if you're going to have forgiveness. One's built on the other for the sins of the people. Again, humanity, humanity, humanity being emphasized. Successful last Adam being emphasized. And then verse 18, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't get better than this. Don't, don't lose sight of verse 18. For because he himself, that's why we have our focus riveted on him. He himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help. Oh, there's that word we just saw. Save, seize, deliver those who are being tempted. People might make fun of Jesus being humble, Jesus being a human, Jesus suffering. It's also he can be successful on behalf of his people and seize us and help us and deliver us how could he if he weren't one of us? And the answer is he couldn't. He couldn't. If you would like some homework today, you can go home and read Romans chapter 5. And don't start in verse 12, even though I know you're going to want to. Okay? If you go home and read Romans chapter 5, we all think, oh, justification. justification. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's what you should think. But what's so interesting in Romans 5 is the Apostle Paul, like the author of Hebrews, uses theology of the richest, deepest, widest kind to help you to live your life now. In Romans chapter 5, the way you can face suffering, no matter how bad it is, is because of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. Your biggest problem has been solved. So you can face tomorrow. You have peace with God. 
so you can face tomorrow, not to mention today. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a great and faithful high priest. Thank you that he became like us, that he became one of us, so that he would be our captain spiritually. We are grateful for him. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go, remember what it says in Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.